Design thinking companies have higher revenues and shareholder returns. So that that's some information that McKinsey threw out and they say ah, there is a third higher revenues and 56% higher returns with the companies that are implementing design thinking. Um, just for the people who are not familiar, design thinking is usually used for product innovation. It's a process. It's, it's an iteration of a process that is non-linear and is based on I don't know enough about something. Let's dig out and in order to focus more into the challenges that final the final user uh, or final customer may have rather than in the idea. And it's kind of like counterintuitive with the natural way that human beings are like, oh, I have a great idea and we believe that this great idea is awesome. Then we implement it and we fail. Well, in design thinking is more about focusing on the challenges and having this process of generating ideas, ideation, that is a little bit more into creating prototypes to, in order to reduce the risk of failing. And I was saying that the design thinking is usually used for product innovation, but now there is a couple of parallels that we can have with the way human interaction works at uh, in the, the corporate world. So saying, hey, but this type of processes or mental process develops a little bit of more of empathy or develops more the, the, the this thinking that we can, we are never like a finished product, but more into a beta version that is continuously improving. So, and that's the, one of the reasons why I wanted to have a guest who understands not only design thinking, but also the philosophy behind behind uh, design thinking. Uh, my guest is Danny Spieler, and he's the head of digital fitness program. And by the way, let's, we, we need to define the digital fitness because it has nothing to do with sports or partially at least. Uh, he's working for the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program. So it, it's an organization that is working in more than 170 countries, helping to achieve, to eradicate in fact, the uh, poverty and the reduction of inequalities and exclusion. He has also worked uh, in innovation for the World Food Program. In fact, if I have to summarize, Danny has been helping international organizations to innovate in the public and the private sector. And another funny, funny fact is that I go to know Danny. Uh, I love this uh, attending innovation workshops. And what struck me is, uh, is the fact that when he was explaining how to lead an innovation project, he was more, more than the process itself. He was more focused on the human side. And I say, wow, I need to keep tabs with this guy. So welcome to uh, the growth hacking uh, culture episode that we have today, Danny. It is a pleasure to have you. And I have a really, really personal question. How did you pick up this crazy life journey of working on innovation in multi multiple countries, different type of industries, purpose and less purpose organization? Ivan, thank you for, first of all, what an introduction. I feel, um, I feel humbled by your introduction. Thank you so much. And <laughs> thank you for the, for the invitation and allowing me to be part of your podcast and of this journey. Thank you so much. Uh, feel honored. To your question, I'm a, I'm very high in openness to new experience, right? My whole, my whole being, my my soul, if you would like to say that, right? My whole, my whole psyche is tuned towards discovery and innovation. In a way, I always want to try new things. It's always been like that from trying different sports, different music, different music instruments, different jobs, different. Um, work assignments, I've always been attracted to trying new things. And I originally started um, studying in, I'm German originally, mm -hmm. where I grew up and went to school, but then I um, went to Glasgow University where I studied philosophy. I love big ideas. I was fascinated by um, the big ideas that the philosophers of ancient times would come up with, and of modern times, of course. But I soon realized, well, with philosophy, I'm going to be a professor or something. So that might not be the right pathway. And nobody's going to employ me probably with um, knowing everything about Aristotle, Nietzsche and Immanuel Kant. Right. So. But I fell in love with 
political philosophy. That was really practical. I saw something there. Why do we work together the way we work together as humans? Why do we set up our society and in design thinking terms, how might we create a better, more productive, uh, more peaceful, more free society? Right. Mm -hmm. So I like that question. And so I went into political philosophy and did a second master degree in Vienna at the Diplomatic Academy um, that is part of the University of Vienna, where I did a master's in international relations. So this was my way into the diplomatic humanitarian sector, where I started working on EU projects, uh, pretty much like public consultancy projects. So technical assistance to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kosovo, um, technical assistance to the Ministry of Finance in Ukraine, all of these kind of projects I started working on. However, that work was... How can I say? It was done in a very uninnovative way. So the way it was, all these projects, the way they were done and executed was the the European Commission, World Bank, any big donor would write, would, would procure, would say, here's a project, right? This is what we want to do. And you would come up with a plan without even talking to the people on the ground, without even... You, you would do like your desk research and all of that, but you wouldn't really dive deep into the human-centric part. So it was very linear, the process, right? And I did that for years and eventually I got really tired of it. So I was in Vienna, I was in Bosnia, I was traveling for this job to come to, you, to answer your question of being in different countries and doing that. But I was fed up with this old school, boring process, very, yeah, very top-down I felt very hierarchical in many ways and very linear. And so I thought like, this is not for me anymore. And so I did something else. I started my own company. I did something else. But then I found out about design thinking. I, I found this um, small company, a design thinking and behavioral science uh, laboratory in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. Wow. And I looked at what they were doing and they were combining the work that I was doing, the work in the humanitarian, in the international sector, trying to support countries in their development, bringing them um, to a higher economical level or a higher political level. But they were using design thinking and behavioral science. And I was like, ha, huh, these guys seem to be onto something. This is different to what I know and what I've seen. So I packed my bags and moved to Cambodia and started working there as the head of project management for their innovation projects. And we were doing all kinds of different projects for the EU, again, uh, like a plastic bag reduction project or um, behavioral science when it comes to uh, microfinance, microinsurance, so people have better access to financial services or um, insurances. And what I learned there was what you described earlier. I learned the design thinking methodology and the approach and how to apply it to my sector. And that's how the journey started. This was, um, I mean, I, my, my whole journey started 42 years ago, of course, but uh, <laughs> that design thinking, that started about 10 years ago, this innovation journey for me and applying it specifically to the public sector. I switched in between to the private sector, as you said, I, like I worked for innovation platforms also to gather a new knowledge, what's happening in the private sector. And nowadays I'm allowed to travel to many different countries and share my um my knowledge, skills, and competences with the different country offices within UNDP, but also other clients, how we met, right, to talk about what is design thinking, how can we apply it, and how can we make our work, our products, and our services better, and how can we go through what you described, you quoted the McKinsey study there, right? How can how can we be more productive and more innovative in that way, mm. I think? And so, yeah, it was, um, my journey was really like a jumping from different sectors. I almost feel like I was lucky that it fell into my lap, design thinking and this kind of innovative approach. Um, but I think my mind and what I said at the beginning that my my very open mind to open being open to new experience and always searching new big ideas new answers that really kind of um, drew me into this kind of sector and this kind of work 
So yeah, this is how it all started. And here I am traveling many different countries, working with so many different cultures. It's a it's a blessing. Huh? Like I'm allowed to meet so many interesting people. Um, it's quite something. So yeah. It is, Danny. But I have to say that that is almost like you were already designed to where you are today. It's almost like the, the journey that you are describing is quite experimental. And it is not about... You can say that. <laughs> yeah. It's not about... Am I going to be like a millionaire if I do this? Or am I going to achieve a specific goal? It is a process of discovery uh, and where the outcome is a learning unit. Whatever it is, I learned this new thing. So this is how, in fact, by doing certain of your iterations, you, uh, you are the awesome person that you are today. So by trying new things and again, Design thinking, that's exactly the philosophy behind exactly what it is. Right? And I think, Ivan, I think you're, 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 you're pointing something out that's really, really important. Design thinking somehow seems like this all methodology and everything. If you look at people's lives and how they go about life, a lot of it is based on design thinking, although they might not know. Because we never have all the information to make a decision. We always prototype. Right. You might say, like when you do your first internship, what is an internship? An internship is a prototype. You're yeah. trying something because you don't know what would it be like to be an account manager or what would it be like to be a secretary or um, a firefighter, whatever it is. Right. When you do an internship or something, when you try a new job, it's a prototype. And to look at it that way is actually really healthy because then your expectations are also like, I'm going to try this and then I might iterate. And you're absolutely right. This is how I have approached life. I would sometimes feel like a, I would feel drawn towards something, like something would spark, like this um, company in, in, in Cambodia. It would spark, and I was like, they're onto something. Or the university in, in Glasgow. Yeah. You know, I've never been to Scotland, never been to Glasgow. They accepted me, and something drew me in because it was a long-standing old university. Um, Adam Smith was um, went to went to Glasgow University. So I was drawn in by the history, but I've never been there. So it was literally me trying something out, right? Mm. It could have failed completely. And um, and it did at moments and I had to iterate in order to make it work, right? So you're absolutely right. I think you're describing, I think design thinking in many ways describes a life journey in general, right? For, for human beings. I think you're onto something there, yeah. Uh, but the, the, the funny thing in that... Uh, and you know already, like, like I, I'm kind of a nerd with this brain science. Uh, it is it's already difficult for us uh, to go and enter into an experience, like the experience of going into an internship with already having the question. So what is it that I want out of that to understand of this experiment that is called internship? We just go with the flow of life without asking yourself, is it about validating that I want to be an accountant? Is it about validating that I'm, I'm made for this type of work environment? So we human beings always fail to consider life as um, as a trial, as a continuous improvement, or, or I don't know. Let's use a, a, a fancy Japanese word as a, a continuous kaizen in in, in your life. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about my wife. Uh, she's Japanese, so that's why I'm <laughs> kaizen. She would laugh about it if I use a yeah, Japanese yeah. word. So we fail already. Our brain is not automatically wired to ask yourself. So out of this experience, like having this interview, what is what I, I really want to validate? What is my assumption that I want yeah. to validate? Isn't it hard for the brain to, to be prepared to have this level of self-awareness? I think you're right. And I think there is one part in our brain and this is our, I don't know, right? I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscientist, but so this is a, this is me putting out assumptions and a hypothesis, so to speak. <laughs> yes. But I think I would assume that we are as, as, as primates, right? As, 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 as mammals, <laughs> there's a certain um, risk aversiveness within us, right? Mm. Because trying new things could also be deadly, right? Imagine we're still living in ancient times in a tribe or in a cave, etc. So simply trying new food, for example, just to, could be poisonous. Yeah, trying like um, going a new route to a, to a location 
could be dangerous. I don't know, creatures could be lurking in the dark or maybe um, another tribe will. So trying new things is dangerous. And so I think there is a built-in risk averseness within human beings. But I also think this is only, and, but it varies across the, the, the human species. Some of us are highly risk averse. Mm. And you can see that when you work with your colleagues, everybody knows this or within your family. Yeah. Like I have this with my sister. When uh, when I tell her, oh, I'm going to move to Cambodia. She's like, oh my God, why? <laughs> where, where I see opportunity, she sees danger. Yeah. And I think it made this, and again, this is a hypothesis. Within a tribe, I would assume it's good to have some people who are risk averse who go like, Maybe we don't try this new thing because this might be dangerous. Mm. But then you need the innovators. You need the people who are like, yeah, but if we're getting stuck here where we are, this might also be dangerous because we're not developing further as individuals, as a tribe, as a society. Mm. So I think the difficulty you described is that there is a part in us that is risk averse. Some of us have it more than others. So for, for, for some adopting like a design thinking methodology in their job or in their life, Mm. I'd be more difficult because their mind works in a specific way that actually is like, oh, trying new things, there is danger. So I think working with people who have um, are more risk averse, I think you have to offer them more opportunity to show that there is less risk for them or that it's actually you described it earlier, right? When you described design thinking as a methodology, that it's actually less risky because you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're trying something quickly and early. You mm. might fail, but it's not very costly. Exactly. It's, it's simple. So I think explaining this to people who are more risk averse. So for them, it's really hard to adapt. And for the other people, right, there's a risk there too. They might want to try it. Like people like me, I'm like, oh yeah, just try it. Let's, let's go. <laughs> right. And uh, there's of course a danger in that too, that you're uh, too, too quickly jumping on new opportunities without considering everything. So I think there's different parts in the brain that keep us from trying new things or to executing things too quickly without listening to the to the to the risk averse people, right? They're the, that are saying like, "Why are you trying this? It might might not be good for us." So, and I think there's an evolutionary reason for it, probably. Uh, I I want to dwell a little bit more into this area mm. because. Is really design thinking is kind of a fake friend. So you look at this, you look at the slide, it looks clear, a, a clear process on paper. And then when you start putting it in practice, it's so difficult to remove your ego of having like a beautiful, what or what you believe to have like a beautiful solution in your head. Um, and to get rid of it, to go and still try to dig up a little bit more on the needs of the user or customer. So our biases and focus on problems uh, is quite strong because we, we want to go straight to the solution instead of going back and empathizing with the, the challenges of, of the potential user. So it's, it's not a natural way of saying, yeah. of removing this idea that my idea is not the only one, I can validate it, but I need to be focused on the problems of the user. So humans are not kind of wired on, the, on that way. So another defect of the brain. Um, what is your opinion on why it is so hard, in fact, to, to remove our ego and, and go back to the basics of focusing on the challenges? Yeah, so it's a great question. And as with so many theories and so many methodologies, uh, I think you put it right, right? It looks great on paper. Yeah. <laughs> and then execution, reality, looks very, very different often because what we stumble into are, I think, the, yeah, the, the human aspects, right? Mm -hmm. Our own psychology. And you pointed one thing out that resonated, the ego, right? There is something, and there's a second part that, that I was thinking of. There is um, talking again about uh, neuroscience. And again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but this is something that a colleague of mine shared with me once. There is an ego. So of course we want to be right. Mm. That's right. We, 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 we love to be right. Every human being, everybody who fights with their spouse or their partner, we know we want to be right, right? There is a part, and I think that's true for, for life in general, 
and of course, based on our own human experience, our um, our our life journey, um, we believe that all of these truths that we have, all of the all of the knowledge that we have, that leads towards a specific view of the world that is correct. Right? This is the answer. This is the solution, of course. And it's very very difficult to detach from that and allow new views. Right. So there's the ego part, right? That we are kind of like we want to be right. And I think that's the ego part. There's a second part that I want to share. There's a part here behind our um behind our ear approximately in the brain that flares up when we have a new idea that we really like, where we like conceive yeah. a new idea and we're like, and the same part flares up um in people who are addicted to a substance. And this is so interesting. I think we get addicted to our own ideas and our own solutions. And that's why I think in reality, it's often so difficult to let go of uh, a solution. So somebody comes with a problem in your job, right? Or in your life, but let's stick with the, with the professional sphere for now. Somebody comes with a, with a problem, with a challenge. And you're like, ah, I got this solution. And now you're entering into this kind of prototyping iteration cycle and you will have to probably let go of your idea. At least to some degree, it might have to change or your user interviews show you that your idea was um, shit. It wasn't it, it didn't yeah. it didn't really solve the problem or it didn't it didn't respond to a specific need of your users or of the clients or of the people you're working for. Right. And then letting go of that solution. And I've. I'm experiencing it all the time. It's so difficult to let go, to go like, why is this not right? I, I Just a, one example. I had a discussion. I was designing a workshop with a friend and a colleague a few days ago. And he had a brilliant idea, actually. But for some reason, I couldn't fully comprehend it. And I give him, I, I started poking holes. Huh? I started like, why do you think this is a good idea? Doesn't it take too long? And he wouldn't let go of it, which was good at this point, but it was an interesting moment. Like he wouldn't let go of his idea. The idea, by the way, was brilliant and we executed it in the workshop and it worked wonderfully. So he was right. But there was two things happening there. He couldn't let go of his idea, which was interesting to watch. And my, and I didn't fully comprehend the idea, so I couldn't take it in. So I'm, I brought my ego, I think, into the discussion because I wanted to, no, 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 but I have a different idea. And I wanted to, I think, like underlying that was my own personal ideas. And I wanted to push that forward. So there was a bit of ego, a bit of addiction on his side. And we experienced that struggle. Now, how can we overcome that is probably the question, right, as well. Like we have to think about like, how can we actually make design thinking, which looks nice on paper? How can we make it work in reality? And I, 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 well, there's no, there's no one size fits all answer, no straightforward path. But I think one important part is to becoming conscious of these things and kind of um, catching yourself hmm. when you're like starting, like what I did with my, with my colleague there, when I start to fight for an idea going like, okay, why am I? And I actually said it to him in this meeting. I was like, I'm not quite sure why I'm so adamant of changing it and i'm and he was like and i'm not quite sure why i'm fighting so much for it so we just put it out in the open we made the unconscious conscious in order to actually make it work and then in the end it worked but i guess consciousness and being self-aware about these these mechanisms in our brain is a good first step to make the beautiful theory work in practice that's at least one way of um, making it work. Yeah, Danny, I, I I totally agree. It is difficult. Like it's not like I'm going to switch on a trigger that to become self-aware, uh, more self-aware. But I think that the practice is what make us become better at that. So mm. like, and and I was thinking when when um, you were talking about this comparison that there is between the life of an entrepreneur and the life of some an employee who has been working in corporate, because I have been in both sides. So I, I, I know how was my mindset back then and how is my mindset uh, today. So an entrepreneur uh, maybe has a little bit more of, uh, is less re risk averse, but, and the level of self-awareness and appropriation of ideas has decreased because we get slapped all the time. And the slap is not generating revenue out of 
the ideas, the great ideas that we had, right? That's the more clear slap that you can have in life. <laughs> it's like you have a time, you spend time to develop an idea that you believe in and then you don't generate revenues. Why an employee there. doesn't have <laughs> been there. Yes, exactly. We have been there. Right? What a terrible I... experience, right? You have a great idea and then it fails in the market. I've had, uh, I failed with one of my startups. Um, yeah, it, I have that it, it is a natural path. So we become more mindful. So we become more self-aware on our mm. flows. Um, more mindful. That means also like doing regular check-ins. Can we be right? Are we being emotional or do we have data to prove that what we think is uh, is right? So we, we have been adopting, um, if you want, the design thinking process or or the, uh, or improving self-awareness uh, through the practice. And that's something that is missing sometimes in, cor in corporations, right? Because the risk, what happens if you fail in an, in an idea? Well, you get a low score in the uh, appraisal review. You don't lose your money <laughs> you don't not right you just get less money uh than than expected so i guess that the practice is something that um that helps to develop this level of self-awareness that 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 you you have mentioned right yeah a and another thing is that i i have the feeling that design thinking um has a lot of parallel on the kind of the lifestyle that we that people should have in the in the workforce uh, in order to develop healthy more human-centric behaviors <clears throat> so there is this area of being participative so collaborating in order to to solve us a, a challenge all together like as a team we we are focused on a, on, on a goal and that develops a little bit the cohesion the level of trust of uh, of, of teams um and also this practice of empathy so mm. and and Finally, also the fact that we understand that is the goal is not to be right. The goal is to learn so that we do things better. Uh, and, and that is also practice uh, in design thinking. So how far can we go uh, in terms of this parallel be be between design thinking and the practice of human-centric behaviors at work? Is there, can, be, can it be used for more than simply creating designing innovative products yeah yeah you 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 touched on a whole bunch of things there i think yeah i talk a lot uh, danny <laughs> no 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 it's just interesting like uh, you sparked so many ideas yeah you but i love listening to you it's all all good you sparked a lot of ideas in my mind let me let me start by some uh, i wanted to um, pick up on something that you said there's something about this freedom of creativity that is necessary to not have um in order to be freely creative and come up with new ideas, you it's good to not feel infringed by a corporate structure or by certain dangers. On the other hand, an entrepreneur, for example, always has skin in the game. Yeah. It's, it's their money. I lost money with the startup I just referred to when I when I, I started I launched a product and um went okay for a couple of months but then anyways for many reasons um, this is a whole different story i can tell but for many different reasons um it it didn't really take off and didn't didn't create the profits the revenues that i that i was hoping for and that i needed in order to make it financially viable mm. and having that skin in the game also can be very um, infringing on your creativity because there's danger you're losing a lot of money so often we find ourselves in this in this limbo between like when we have employees in our companies in our in our um in our projects on the one hand i think it's crucial for them to have the creative freedom and not worry so much about everything mm. on the other hand having a little bit of skin in the game might mm. be actually also a good factor of taking into account it's a good driving factor so anyways this was one thing i was um picking up on your question, however, went more into the area of can can we use design thinking on a on a larger scale in life? I believe that's kind of what you're in life or developing healthier work cultures, right? Yeah. Because it, yeah. there is a little bit of certain moments where you see a parallel that of collaboration, empathy, uh, learning from failures. Yeah, yeah. I think this is another 
similar to what I was saying about the entrepreneur having skin in the game and the employee who might be who might not have so much skin in the game other than of course they might be losing their job at some point but if they if they try too many things and fail too much <laughs> I don't know there is a there's another thing we are we, the the question I ask myself under which conditions in which kind of environments do human beings thrive yeah hmm. so that's a that's a good starting point and I think we sometimes go through, nowadays there's one philosophy, one way in terms of new ways of working, new work environments that is very focused on mental health, mindfulness, calming things down, really um, putting the, as you said, the human centric part, putting the human being with their needs and their yeah, their needs into the center of the of the design of that environment. Now, I think that's a good approach to some degree, because there's another aspect that is um, that comes to mind there, which I think is important when we talk about creating new ways of working. Human beings and design thinking focuses on that are natural problem solvers. We love problems. And if we don't have a problem, we'll create one. Whoever has been in a relationship also knows that. If we don't have problems, we'll create one in order to solve that. I think we're natural problem solvers. And humans thrive in difficulty. We need friction in order to also fully discover our potential. And what I think is crucial is to find that balance between the calm and mindful and and, and creating an environment in which we are not pushed completely to our limits, where we burn out or where we where we lose um, our confidence in ourselves, but at the same time, having the right amount of challenge and problems in our lives and in our work to really feel like we are accomplishing something. I think both of them are necessary, and I think their design thinking is interesting because design thinking is a it's a problem solving method right that's what it is where you're, you're you're the first thing every design thinker does is like okay what is the problem what is the challenge and then how might we solve that specific Oops. problem and so and then we thrive be, by finding new solutions right and actually ideally then later on in the process actually seeing the fruits of our our ideation that a pro, uh, that a solution actually provides um, help support to a company or individuals, right? Whatever the, the product or service is. So I think we find ourselves when we talk about, can we use design thinking to create new ways of working, better ways of um, of working? I think we're finding ourselves in this, in this dichotomy, in this kind of balance between let's, let's allow people to get to the right amount of limit of their problem solving skills so they feel challenged but um appreciated for really doing something amazing while not pushing the the limits too far where people dissolve literally like their 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 mental health dissolves their physical health dissolves because they're pushed to the limit so that that these are some thoughts um on your question uh, <clears throat> so kind of you it was directed towards the studies of optimal productivity and creativity of uh, oh, interesting yeah. uh, from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, Mihaly flow the the father of flow in fact this area where we are driven but I but a little bit of a challenge that we can still solve and yeah. it's not that like too easy where where we get a little bit bored and, and I like this pers perspective with design thinking it, it is true when you are involved uh, um, in the, in the process, you have this area. It's not totally. I, I I'm completely uh, completely with you uh, on on that uh, on that specific topic. Um, <clears throat> now, imagine that. Uh, well, let's not imagine. So today, corporations have two options, more or less, to be to have a process of innovation. One is the traditional brainstorm sessions. You know, you go straight ahead and you throw out ideas and maybe you prioritize these ideas. Uh, just like a standard brainstorm ses uh, session, focus more into uh, solutions. 
And then you have from the, the other hand, uh, the, uh, the, the design thinking process. Um, what is your take? So should we go, is there benefit still to keep the standard brainstorming sessions? Uh, throwing ideas, is still collaborative, maybe, or should companies really say that doesn't work? Huh. The rate of success is too low. Yeah, I think the starting point is the big question here. That's the that's the most important one. I think brainstorming, like ideation, let's call them ideation. Yeah, the pure ideation. Right? Yeah. Let's yeah, like a classic brainstorming session. I mean, that's what we do in design thing when we do an ideation session, but that's not usually not the first step. Exactly. Mm. And I think this is where the where where companies have might run into trouble. Now, you, this might be the right solution if you are hundred percent certain that you're looking at the right problem then that might be a good first step. But when do you really know that? And I think one, one big question or one, one, one principle should always be start with the need, right? It's actually part of the, the, the one of the workshops that I'm running right now, one of that um, one, one headline is actually start with the need. Have you identified the needs of your customers, clients, users, whatever, right? Because if you, your ideation, yours, your brainstorming session needs to focus on a specific problem. And if hmm. you haven't identified the right problem, sometimes you, you might actually not solve the right problem with your ideas because you haven't identified the right problem and kind of going one step, taking a step back and say, you know what, let's talk to our users, clients, customers, whatever business you're working in. And let's find out where they have issues, where they have pain points, where where do they see the problem? And you might actually learn that what you thought is a problem isn't a problem at all, or that the origin of the problem, the root causes of the problem are completely different from what you thought. I've had this many, many times. Like um, I was mentioning earlier, we were doing a behavior change project in Cambodia on plastic bag reduction. And we were wondering, why is it that Cambodians use so many plastic bags? Why is that? right? We knew the problem. There are so many plastic bags. Now we could ideate on many things like you could ban plastic bags from a from legally, right? Through the government. You could, um, you could introduce new plastics that are less uh, detrimental to the environment if, su if such a thing exists, right? Or new products, uh, more kind of bamboo or, or, or natural fibers, let's say, right? So there's many ways you could approach that, but it didn't answer the question, why are people using so much? And we thought maybe people just don't know, right? Maybe we didn't, what, what is the root cause for it? And what we found, or one of the reasons, it wasn't the only reason, but one of the reasons that we found that we didn't imagine before, we needed to talk to people. So we knew that mo many Cambodians go into the markets to buy their food, right? There are these big wet markets, as they call them, right? Where you can buy all kinds of food. You, wh Whoever has been to, to Asia who's traveled there knows, like all kinds of foods, all kinds of animals, everything there, right? Wonderful, inspiring places with spices and um, everything you need. And we started talking to vendors. We started talking to customers there. And one thing that we found out, it was so interesting. We observed the vendors. And what we saw was that they put, when somebody would buy fruits and vegetables, they would put the apples in one bag. They would put the cucumbers in one bag and they would put the tomatoes in one bag and then they would put all of these three bags into one big bag and then give it to the customer. <laughs> and so we went to the, we, 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 so we observed, right? We did proper user research. We started, we started with observation and then we started user interviews. So we talked to customers and to the vendors and we asked the vendors, why do you do that? And they're like, it's good customer service. We don't like people don't want their fruits to touch their vegetables, to touch their meat and the different products shouldn't touch. So it's good to have like a plastic barrier between them. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. Then we started talking to the customers and asked, do you think that's good customer service? And they're like, never thought about it. And you're like, oh, so the vendors have an assumption about good customer service. The customers actually don't care that much. Mm. So what we introduced part of the behavior change campaign which was called combine all in one, that the vendors would just put everything in one bag and just try that out for yeah. a couple of weeks and see what happens. No customers ever had any problems. They functioned on a wrong assumption about what good customer service was. And 
gave out too many plastic bags that people then would throw away. So we reduced the plastic bags in the in the wet markets by 30% by just doing this. And what I, why I'm saying this is like, we did not know what the problem, or that was part of the problem. There's more aspects to this specific problem, but we did not know this specific part of the problem. And it needed us to actually go and talk to people to find out about that. If we would have just ideated on plastic bag reduction, we would have never found out about this part, right? We could have just brainstormed on how let's uh, let's ban plastic bags. Well, that would have solved that probably too. The government wouldn't have been up for that for sure. But in any case, we could have uh, found many different solutions, but we wouldn't have found out about that root cause. That was an easy, simple solution that saved plastic bags. It saved money for the vendors. They wouldn't give, they have to buy the plastic bags in order to give them out. So there was a financial incentive for them, right? It was an environmental progress and the customers were just as happy as before. They didn't care so much. So it was a, the vendors were working on the wrong assumptions and we needed to find that out by talking to people, by doing proper user research, right? And so starting with your brainstorming session might only be possible if you're really certain about you're solving the right problem. Otherwise, you're probably walking in the dark. Um, and I think... Yeah, you have to you have to validate, clarify some of that around your problem. But that goes again with another psychological barrier that we have. That is that even the needs we can imagine that we know about the needs, and 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 it's not like I'm not telling you the story of of a moms and pop shop in 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 my city. I'm telling you the story of a big good corporation. Like when we were asking where we were brainstorming about the needs of certain customers, it was the marketing manager who was putting the slides together about his assumptions. Mm. Did he ever speak to a customer? He didn't do the thing that uh, that you did to go and fly to Cambodia to talk with real people to understand what is the root cause of the problem. Otherwise, as you say, you would have come with a beautiful solution that uh, we Westerners love to do is to say, let's ban it. <laughs> or let's create an awareness sessions about why plastic is bad bad to for Cambodians. That wouldn't have got any uh, any impact, right? So it is again another mental barrier that that we have is that we assume we have a lot. We assume that we know the needs. I know how Danny is. We we don't spend enough time to get to know the person be, uh, the, be behind to understand the, the, his needs to what makes him happy what makes it what he really hates and uh, that's something that is terrible any corporate because of the competition we don't do that of course we we have to keep the distance between the customer and uh, and uh, me as a brand director or brand manager right yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we do use it. Yeah, like there's usually in your communications and marketing departments, there's some user research or some customers research happening, but it's all very uh, quantitative, right? It's very kind of, you get all the statistics yeah. um, with surveys and everything, but how they're done, how questions are asked are yeah. uh, some questionable. Um, I think the the observation actually going to people and then the, the 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 qualitative research actually talking to people finding out in interviews and it might not be statistically relevant at the beginning because you only talk to five people maybe at the beginning, but it gives you a signal right you're like oh five people said the same thing maybe there's yeah. something and then you can go further so um, yeah I think I think there is something there and there's the other part and I think it brings us back to one of the earlier points that you said about empathy and about how we function as human beings. For some reason, we're all the center of our own universe, right? Every human being thinks they're the center of their own universe. And I do that, you do that for sure, and we do that to different degrees. Mm-hmm. How and to be empathetic, right? It's not just to kind of, you know, you see somebody being upset or angry and you're like, oh, I know what that feels like. It's It's more than that, right? It requires us to step out of our own reality and assume for a second that we are in the se- in this other center of the universe, in that in the the person that stands across from us. And this is very, for some, it's easier, but I think it's rather difficult to really kind of go there in our mind. And it requires these conversations. So, I mean, the easiest um, the the example that I said about Cambodians, but any and anywhere in the world where you work cultural difference you do not understand where people come from why they do things the way they do if you haven't lived there 
and if you haven't gone through that. So just to give you another example, why do like what we also observed, and you see this in, in 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 many countries, not only in Asia but in Cambodia, people would throw the plastic bags on the ground, and you would be like, why do people not care? So the Western assumption was like, do they just not care about their country? Now we started talking to people. And before the introduction of plastic bags, everything would have been wrapped in uh, banana leaves. And mm-hmm. you would just throw them on the ground and they just deteriorated with the next rain, really, they're gone. So the habit, their human behavior was based on, the, it wasn't about them caring. My judgment or the Westerners judgment was completely wrong. It was mm-hmm. a habit that was based on a different product or a different packaging that was there before, right? And my empathy, my understanding of their cultural heritage, where they come from, their culture, how how things are working um, was wrong, right? And kind of stepping out of our own and allowing us. And there's, again, the ego you mentioned earlier, right? We 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 think everybody sees the world exactly the same way we do. And that's just not true, right? We have uh, very different lenses, all our experiences, everything we have ever seen heard our upbringing the schools we went to the friends we had the heartbreaks that we experienced whether or not we went to a country i had this um i I went to italy when i was like 19 or something and my car was broken into and was stolen i had a very bad experience in italy so i didn't like italy for many years (laughs) i fortunately i went later on to italy and had very good experiences but that personal experience i extrapolated from that that italy is a violent um, criminal place right (laughs) i'm saying this as an example and i'm overstating this slightly of course but we make assumptions based on our experiences and there's many other aspects and perspectives Um, and yeah getting out of that mindset and really allowing us to step into somebody else's shoes i think yeah it's difficult but it only happens in conversation right only when we talk and when we listen carefully then we can see what somebody else is thinking where they're coming from so I think this is a necessity. I, I think it's, so something that stays <clears throat> with me uh, out of this part of the conversation is that uh, identifying the the specific needs of someone else, uh, you cannot get it by assumptions, by what is your past experience or what you have observed in television or what is, or even when some market research reports are, are telling you something, you can only get to know someone in order to solve these real problems and bring value with through innovation only if you have an interaction. Because the the option that you have to uh, for open questions for a flow of additional information that you haven't thought of asking is amazing. Amazing. It's a, it's something that will contribute that your solution is going to be more impressive, more impactful, and potentially generate revenues or potentially bring satisfaction if your solution is for the internal customers in your organization. Um, Danny, I have a qu- my last question, in fact, I, and I want to, to, I want you to consider your, that because of the solid background that you have in design thinking and innovation. So, and I want you to have this exercise of, Imagining, so you have a magic wand, and you are offered to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, who is recognized for its toxic culture. Mm. Okay, so what are your first actions? What what would you do? This is probably a bit unpopular. What I'm going to say now. <laughs> That's why we have this uh, episode, Danny. So that we challenge. Culture, we often talk about culture as if it was something outside of our relationships and outside of the human beings, like almost on a meta level. But we as human beings create culture. So a toxic culture is the result of some toxic individuals and some toxic relationships. Mm. So my first step and this might sound rough, but you need to identify those those spots. If it's literally toxic, so people suffer, people have mental health breakdowns, whatever the results of toxic means, right? So we can mm-hmm. we can talk about that. But um, and it might be very successful because it's a Fortune five hundred, so it's a successful business. Yeah. But people are somehow suffering. So so 
And there might be a question of balancing that because some of these toxic individuals and some of these toxic relationships might be actually quite successful, right? Hmm. So, so this is a difficult one. But I would identify the first thing I would do is like identify those individuals and those relationships, right? There, there might be, the, and then the culture that comes from that, right? So one example would be, for I, I guess, for example, would be a a very harsh top-down. Um, management style that doesn't recognize people for their time, their effort and everything. So people are kind of put down. So they can't grow, they can't develop. Identify those people. See if you can have that conversation. Otherwise, I think you have to get rid of toxic aspects of your company. If somebody's not open to make these changes, if they are not self-aware enough to go like, you know what, the way you're treating people or the way you are handling conversations, the way you communicate, that's not on here. We don't do that here anymore. Hmm. So that's why I said it's unpopular. I would probably try if it's literally toxic, because I've been in situations like that. I've had many different companies I've worked with and for as a freelancer, as a but also as an employee. And I've been in these situations and um yeah you can't you you can't just kind of bring a consultant in and 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 make a presentation on better culture that's not going to change anything exactly yeah mm. so you have to identify the people see if they're open to changes sometimes they're only the result of toxic relationships they had before right so i think the the doctors in um in 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 in, in hospitals are a great example everybody works insane hours there and usually it's the, the 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 chief doctors in the in the hospital that kind of go like, well, I went through it, so I'm going to put everybody else through it. And it's like, really, is that the right way of going about? It? And sometimes there's assumptions, or they are the result of a culture that happened before them, and then they kind of pass it on. So identifying that, seeing that, um, if you can make these changes within these um, individuals and within the structures, I think would be my first step. So I think the main point here is identify identifying. The need, <laughs> I guess you start here with the need too, right? Like, am I looking at the right problem? Is that is that toxic culture based on individuals? So talk to people would be probably the first step in order to find out if I'm looking at the right thing. Then bringing in the consciousness about it. So why is this happening? Like, is this, um, are you actually like um, an, an, an open-minded person willing to improve and change? within your work, within your culture, within your relationships with your with your colleagues. And if not, then you know, there might have you, you might need to make some changes in that organization. And I think then after that, you can then introduce new ways of working. So of course you have to give people an opportunity to come up with solutions for the problem, right? So co-design, so to speak. So you you go like, okay, how would you change this? So I wouldn't necessarily kind of put my own ideas. I, I would put them also on the table. I'm part of that organization at that point in this imaginary journey that we're taking. I'm suddenly the CEO there. But I would um, also, of course, you need to hear from your colleagues. You need to hear from your staff in order to kind of integrate their ideas so that they all, like if you introduce new ways of working, new processes, new ways of communicating, how do we meet? How do we speak to each other? How do we speak to the outside world? that has to come at least partially from the from the crowd so for them to own it and actually make it a reality right and of course i would be involved in that but yeah i think these are some some immediate thoughts about toxic culture uh, dania i would certainly that there is a lot of similarities on, on the the actions that i would take in this uh fant fantastic example um maybe i would also try to identify not only the, the ones having the displaying the toxic behaviors, but also the ones who have allowed the toxic behaviors. Because that happens very often also that, you know, the, these people, yeah. Toxicity you by omission, not by, so so just by exactly. not saying anything, yeah. by not doing anything, it just happens. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I see. Hey, Danny, you are an excellent uh, uh, performer, so you can continue doing whatever you are doing. So that type of people is, they are also quite, uh, quite important in the equation. Now the question is: Are they capable of changing the of not allowing it? Because you did when you have been in a in a in a company for a certain long long time, uh, then you develop like natural reflexes that are repeated without you being aware. Like one hundred percent little comment about 
uh, about the other genders, little comment about certain races or about the, the, the philosophy of not having uh, balance in, in, in our life. Either you, I still remember someone who told me, you want a life or you want a family? That's one of my uh, my bosses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I have a lot of stories, but I don't want to discuss about that. <laughs> no, no, no. But you, 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 you're right. You're, you're right there. Yeah. And there's like this. Um, I mean, there, there's of course the question on what is toxicity in the workplace, right? And who describes that? And I think you're right. So there is on the one hand intentional toxicity, like there is, uh, there you, you do encounter in your life some people who are actually who don't want to make the life of people better, like, which is interesting. There is some, some darkness in them, but most people in your right are probably trying to do their best in their little world. And what happens is that they probably by learning certain habits, by just certain, certain structures that they encounter, they learn to react a certain way and just do things a certain way. So yeah. there's no, there's no, um, no bad intent maybe there. Right. Mm. So that, that's why I was also saying you need to talk to people in order to exactly. figure out what, yeah. um, what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then there's another question. This might also be unpopular. Who's calling it toxic? What I've also seen is, I mean, I've been I've been one of these people, too, at some point. So. There is a part in the human psyche, too, that wishes things to be easy in life and that wishes to simp to 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 not encounter too much so it's a it's a somehow a bit of a victim mindhood mindset right it's a bit of a i don't know so sometimes you get also people in your environment that complain a lot about how work is difficult how the company is shit and how everything and they call it toxic right and you're like i don't know i actually like everybody here so i've had this situation too where i'm like maybe there's a toxicity coming from you that is more that is not just um evil corporate structures that try to put you down but maybe you are also not willing to really kind of put yourself out there so there's another there's another way of looking at that because i've seen that too which is more on, on the passive side of toxicity if we want to call it that right that there's also people who are complaining a lot who create a very uncomfortable work environment and call everything toxic that is happening but when you look around there's a lot of people who are giving their everything they're trying hard to make things work nobody's perfect and um so i've seen both right so it's, it's an interest it's a it's not an easy solution there it's not an easy you just gave in fact uh, a beautiful example of what are the realities in 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 in, in the world it is that a single symptom can have different root causes. But yeah. if we decide to take the call without investigating, digging deep, then we might end up with the wrong solution. You might yeah. be firing people when in fact there was a, a little bit of, a, of another group who was complaining and they are the one displaying uh, displaying toxicity. So it is so important in, in, in this world that is volatile, changing, uncertain, to uh, take the time to dig on the on on the right on the right root causes so that we come up with the right uh, solution so that's something that is it has become like a no brainer in in corporations to have an approach that is focused on the customer rather than just throwing innovation for the hell of it or having ex, uh, expensive implementations of tools especially with now with this trend of digitalization without knowing if we have defined the problem in a correct way. Mm. Right. Danny, so we are at the end of this episode and I wanted to uh, to ask you, so how can people reach you out uh, if they have questions about design thinking, about innovation? Uh, and even if they have questions about, I mean, I, I haven't heard enough about in the public sector that it was used so heavily and thanks to you in fact now i know that big organizations are using it uh so how it's can the, people reach you yeah so so the just to come to your to that point you just made the demand is huge right the public sector as so often is a bit slower in many ways than the than the private sector and demand for innovation innovative thinking design thinking introducing these new methodologies is is there right i hear it all the time governments are asking for it Big international organizations are asking. The easiest way on that professional level to connect with me is through LinkedIn, mm -hmm. Danny Spiller. Um, so it's D-H 
A-N-I, and my last name is S-P-I-L-L-E-R. You'll find me on LinkedIn. Write me a message so people can connect um, there with me. That's probably the easiest way of, of reaching out. <laughs> and you probably find me on the, uh, some other social media platforms with that name. But I think on a professional level, drop me a message there and we can connect. And um, I always love having new people in my network. And I love talking about this, um, but also about many other things um, regarding to my professional journey and everything. Yeah. So, and Ivan, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm deeply grateful no. for being part of this. It was a very inspiring conversation. I really enjoyed it. Danny, it is me who was inspired because for once I, I, I got the chance to to divert from just the typical professional discussion into something that is more human driven. We have discussed work culture. We have the, it almost kind of philosophical discussion about design thinking and yeah, kind of a spiritual at the end. Wow. Oh, that was excellent for me. Thank you so much, Ivan. Much Thank you, Danny. Have an excellent day. You too. Goodbye.